This is Alumni Allowed, a podcast by Graduate Center students for Graduate Center students. In each episode, we talk with a GC graduate about their career path, the ins and outs of their current position, and the career advice they have for students. This series is sponsored by the Graduate Center's Office of Career Planning and Professional Development. Hello, I'm Joseph Paul Hill, a PhD candidate in theater and performance at the Graduate Center and a fellow in the Office of Career Planning and Professional Development. This is a special episode of Alumni Allowed. This conversation was recorded in May 2021 as part of our virtual panel, Careers at the Intersection of Education and Technology. During the event, our three GC alumni panelists, Drs. Maria Ginelli, Barbara Hubert, and Aaron Rose Glass, answered audience questions about their experiences working in EdTech. To begin the event, I asked our three panelists to introduce themselves by describing their transition from graduate school to their current positions. First up is Maria Ginelli, who has a PhD in educational psychology and is the senior manager of online teacher education programs at the American Museum of Natural History. Maria, is it okay if we start with you? Absolutely, Joseph. Thanks for the introduction and thanks everybody for joining us. My uh, research at the GC was around uh, pre-testing and different types of feedback in online courses for adults. And I did that because I was working at the museum while I was a student at the GC. And part of what I do at the museum is manage the partnership with Coursera, where the museum has a half a dozen science courses for educators. So I was already steeped in all of that big data. And Coursera's platform lets you do multivariate uh, experiments on the back end. So I used that for my research. Uh, kind of double dipping a little. The work I was doing at the museum helped me at the GC and vice versa. I'm still doing that research now because of the findings from my study. So we're in the, the second version of that, and I'll be looking at that data in the next few months. At the museum, I manage online teacher professional uh, programs. So the museum has graduate courses for science teachers. Um, there are three credit courses that are completely online, really packed down to six weeks. So I manage that program along with the Coursera partnership. The trajectory was interesting. I came into educational technology because I was a research subject in the nation's first educational technology trial back in the 1990s at a public school in New Jersey and just became fascinated with the whole idea that you could be a doctor but not have a medical degree and thought, I wanna study what other people do too. And so it's just been a, a wide arc since then. Next is Barbara Hubert, who has a PhD in urban education and was the director of professional learning at BrainPop. Since our event, Barbara has been promoted to Director of Learning Experience Design. Hi, I'm Barbara Hubert. Um, my dissertation was about thinking through the discursive practices of Teach for America core members and, and what they said both about schooling and disability. I have a background as a special education teacher for many, many years, and so definitely brought that into my interest in work um, at the Graduate Center. and. I think the sort of through line from my work at the, uh, the Graduate Center to what I'm doing now is really rooted in this, this assumption of the access that we create for kids instructionally and what that does for how we're labeling kids as disabled in the systems that we're sort of moving them through and the opportunities we're giving them. So for me, it was thinking through a lot of 
what were teachers on the ground in, the, in a very narrow subsect that was sort of more broadly contextualized in neoliberal education reform movements? What was the relationship and impact on like words that were used and how they were talking about kids on how they offered and created access for kids, particularly kids labeled as disabled? And I, I sort of rely on that in, in every role that I've been in, but but particularly in this one in that I feel like I always work in service of creating meaningful access for kids. <laughs> and then like everyone will hear me say that over and over at work and be like that one, like she talks about creating access all the time, but, but it's, it's true. And, and so I um, work now as a director of professional learning and what I do at BrainPop, which is an educational technology product that um, our mission is to empower and shape, uh, to empower kids to shape the world within them and around them. We do that through creating um, meaningful learning experiences we're known for our brain pop movies, Tim and Moby. There's some characters, but it's re I really think of it as such a beautiful conduit for, for giving kids access into thinking deeply and, and having access to ideas. So I work a lot with the team around how we'd help teachers help kids. And my focus really is on what does it mean to, to build in instructional access for all? And that's, that's sort of grounds what I do there. Our third panelist is Aaron Rose Glass, a PhD in English who was the senior developer educator at DigitalOcean, but who has since been promoted to manager of developer education. Yes, hello. Um, thanks, Joseph, so much for having me. I, I miss the Graduate Center so much. So it's so nice to get to sort of talk with you on Zoom, and I wish it could be in person. Yeah, so I was in the English department. Um, I was a digital fellow. I don't know if folks are familiar with that program. I think it's still going, and I, I work closely with the um, the future fellows. So I was really, you know, uh, working with people that were thinking about technology, like both of you, um, and how it was impacting education and research. And there were there was a lot of opportunity to um, experiment and and think critically about the adoption of technology in in education. So I ended up writing a, a dissertation that was, you know, really influenced by Freire. Uh, it was the dissertation title is called Software of the Oppressed, right? It was really looking critically at, at this sort of long view of the historical adoption of, of technology in, in higher ed and ultimately big tech, right? How did big tech gain, get its market share through higher ed? And really looking for lost features, you know, were there moments in that technological adoption, the 70s, 80s, 90s even, where we were looking at sort of adopting different technological practice in, in institutions where folks had more access to hacking the tools that they were they were being given. And, you know, what sort of better technological future did that foreclose? So uh, I've been really involved in community-driven software and open source software, ethical software approaches, you know, things that really look for um, giving uh, users or students in particular more agency in the, in the technological platforms that they use. My uh, journey has been really sort of all over the place. I, I have to admit, um, I, I, you know, I don't really know the answers to what we should be doing after we get our PhD. I really wanted an academic job and I spent several years on, on the market and that was really uh, stressful for me. I don't know how other folks um, find it, but during that time I was working sort of Alt-Act positions. I was associate director at the Center for Arts and Humanities at UCSD here in San Diego for a while. I then moved into a digital scholarship librarian position at the library at UCSD as well. And I was just always trying to find, find my way. I ended up reconnecting with an awesome fellow student in the, the English department, Lisa Taliaferri. She's brilliant. She did a digital dissertation. And um, through her, I uh, started consulting for a, a company 
of DigitalOcean on, you know, thinking about their community platform and the ways they share educational materials with the developer community. You know, eventually through Lisa, I, I was convinced, I, I realized that there could be places for a PhDs out in industry. And, and I think that took me some time to realize. I thought like I want an academic job or bust, but through recent people like her, I, I started to see that the world could be a better place if, if some of us folks are, are in industry and um, we could actually help drive change in my industry, in particular technological change, maybe for the better. So it's been a really interesting journey. And, um, you know, I think it can be hard navigating, um, navigating life after, after the PhD, but uh, I am unexpectedly sort of delighted and, and, and challenged every day in, in the spot that I find myself in. So I'm really excited to be thinking through all these questions with, with you all today. I think that actually transitions well into a good first question. I'm wondering what your job search process looks like. Um, how did you land in your current position? I don't, I don't know what the, the magic answer is to like finding the right, right job. I was, I felt very lucky to reconnect with, with Lisa who helped, you know, open this new possibility for me. But I think people are really what's most important. Yeah, I couldn't agree more, Erin. You know, I'm thinking back on the different jobs I've had. I've been in ed tech now for uh, 22 years and every single job I've had, I've gotten through networking. I, I think you can't overstate the importance of relationships. I don't think that's unique to this field though. I think that's just good life advice. I couldn't agree more, particularly as somebody who, as I've been building my team, I'm like, who did I work with that shares and is aligned philosophically and is like great to do X, Y, and Z. But it's interesting because I knew, I would say several years into my work at the Graduate Center and also sort of being an adjunct at Hunter that I was like, academia is not for me. I think I knew sort of early-ish on that I was like, I want to be in spaces where I can put this foundation, this, this sort of both theoretical foundation, what I'm thinking through in my research, and then tie it to, to pedagogy and what that looks like in the classroom. Early on was like, I want to put this into practice. What does this look like? What are the avenues for me to do that? But for me, it became about like scope of impact that I could have and where I could have that. So before coming going to BrainPop, I through a connection at the GC actually got connected with a job at an organization called New Visions for Public Schools. And they um, are a support network for about 80 New York City DOE schools and they have 10 charter schools. And I worked in the curriculum department there and really thinking around what are the instructional moves teachers can make to create, I mean, I told you you're gonna like get sick of me saying this, that creates access for all the kids in their class. But truly that's what I did there and I, and I loved it. And I got to work with teachers to help them do that. And I was like, yes, this is where I wanna be because I'm like holding all these pieces and I can still do work around like, what does it mean to, socially construct disability, right? Like let's unpack that. Like how are the barriers that we're putting up in our classroom disabling our students versus our students being disabled? So we could still have those conversations and then I could help teachers do something with it just for, instead of sort of existentially being like, yeah, well, what do I do next, right? So I, I wanted to put myself in that, like, what do I do next space? I found Grandpa on my own. It was in the throes of a, of a I was, what would say, was a year long job search because I was like, I know the sort of traversing of spaces that I wanna be in, but I got to be like, is this a good fit for me? In addition to me being a good fit for you because I did some pre-thinking while in the, throughout my graduate program around where I wanted to go. 
because you all agree about the importance of networking, I wonder if there are professional organizations within EdTech that you're a part of or networking organizations that you would recommend or does most of your networking go on with social media? Um, what does that networking actually look like for you? Uh, I'm happy to start. No, I, I am not on social media. I don't, I don't build really, that's not how I like nurture the relationships in my life. I think for me, it's about just developing genuine relationships with the people I work with at like from job to job and even at the GC. But it's interesting because I'm thinking about what, what Barbara and Aaron are saying and how it seems like almost universal our experience has been in terms of relying on relationships. But now that I'm in the position of being a hiring manager, I kind of, I go out of my way to not do that. I prefer um, the cold emails. If I get a referral for a job in my department from a colleague, I like purposely shuffle the resume into the stacks because I, I don't want that bias. So it's, a, it's an interesting mix. In terms of organizations, AERA and ISTE are the two that I lean on the most in my work. It's you know the research part and the ed tech part, but there are others, I'm sure. Those are just the two that are the most prominent for me in the work that I'm doing now. And I'll just piggyback up to say, like, it's such an issue, Maria, you're totally, it's such an issue of equity, right? To think about both holding who we feel like would be a good fit because of our small little circle versus like creating a diversity in perspective. So like constantly holding that as well is super important. I think ARA, ISTE, um, I am a social media cultivator in that folks that I have connected with at conferences across job spaces and at the GC have become this like wonderful network of folks that I'm constantly learning from. You get a sense that you stay connected and you share ideas. And in those sharing of ideas, I still get to feel like I know and get to see people evolve over time in, in what they care about um, in my network. So, yeah. I guess first I would just say that, um, you know, I was pretty active in the digital humanities world and the DH conferences and then the Haystack world and the Haystack conferences. So that's sort of the professional organizations where I learned a lot and met a lot of people. I think the social media question is really interesting to me. I, I think it was really important for um, a certain part of professional development in the last few years. Uh, I really got to meet a lot more people than I would have, shared ideas, learned uh, you know, all the things that um, you're saying, Barbara. Um, I feel like I hit a wall with it. And I feel like I, this is a very personal thing, but I think other people feel this, like it's not something that I really feel like I can do anymore. And so I've, I'm i really interested in people's different ways that they navigate social media, right? Like Maria, you you choose not to, or, or you're not doing that so much. And um, I think that can be really valuable too. I don't, it's just hard to, it's hard to figure out. Cause I will say I did definitely get a lot out of that, but there's a high cost sometimes too. And maybe it depends on whether you're starting out or whether you feel like you've got a network beyond social media. Your jobs are all very different within ed and technology, but for you, where, where's the balance? How important was education and your teaching experience? And or do you have tech skills? Did you have to build tech skills in order to enter the field? Um, did you have to learn how to code, for example? 
sure didn't and still don't. Uh, <laughs> and I'll say it, I, um, I think it's finding the entry point. So I entered through our educators team, right? And it was a group, it was and is a just fantastic group of humans who care deeply about like teaching and learning science and the impact on, and like how we can best cultivate learning conditions. Um, I've learned, and I will say that this is my first for-profit job, which is a whole nother fascinating space to navigate. So I have learned some on the job, but it has mostly been around what the company prioritizes or privileges. And, and that has had to be as a function of my job. Barbara, I think we complement each other really well in this call because I'm the complete opposite. I don't have a single day of teaching experience under my belt. I'm sort of an outlier in the education world, but I code all the time as part of my job. And I'm sure at some point I could let that go, but it's part of the job that I really enjoy. It's sort of, you know, a couple hours a week just zoning out and diving deep into something that is very binary. It either works or it does not. And it's very satisfying to, get to the place where it does work. Um, so there is there is a bunch of that in what I do and you know, doing some very light editing of images and testing different prototypes in the learning management system that we use. I had to learn SQL for my dissertation uh, because all of the big data that comes from Coursera comes down in SQL tables. And I had to learn how to write the queries to aggregate it all. Um, so I actually worked with a computer scientist to learn how to do that. So there's been a lot of overlap for me. Um, not a whole lot of teaching overlap, though. That's so interesting. Um, I feel like I'm a, a little bit in the middle between um, both of you. Uh, yeah, I spent a lot of my um, time at the GC, you know, exploring a lot of different technologies and, you know, learning Python, learning lots of other things like GIS. And then quickly, my alt-act career really became about teaching those tools to um, other academic communities. So yeah, I, I feel, and I think before I knew about the position that I, I currently have, you know, I would, I would think to myself, if I ever did want an industry job, where on earth would these technical skills and these educational experiences meet? But turns out developers need to be taught too. And so here I am. And what I'd say is, I think we get really great experience in, in PhD programs um, that can be really valuable in the for-profit world, but we have to figure out how to articulate it, right? Like they, they don't really care if you say like, I have a PhD in X and like did all this research on Y. You have to figure out like how to articulate that in a way that makes sense in their language and with their mission and um, with their bottom line. So that can be sort of a... Um, a cultural shock, you know, when coming from, from academic land. But uh, I think, yeah, the PhD experience gives you great skills for doing research and for strategizing and for thinking, you know, big picture about projects and initiatives in the sort of industry world. Great. That actually leads perfectly into a wonderful question that came in about how your colleagues interpret your advanced degree. Do you work with a lot of other PhDs? And was that perhaps a selling point or not a selling point for you to, to enter into your company? My experience is people have a really interesting relationship with those three letters at the end of their name. Like, it's fascinating because I've had a, a real diversity of experiences, particularly in this space. 
the company's probably like 250 people. And I'd say like seven to 10 of us folks have moved through and acquired a doctorate degree. And it, in some spaces, comes with this assumption of, of like authority or knowledge, like, oh, well, you have a PhD. Like, I often, like, people will say to me, well, Barbara has a PhD in this. And I'm like, no, I don't. Like, I have, <laughs> like, it's, it's actually, like, if I told you the title of my dissertation, as I did, you all, you would maybe make some jumps as to how I got here, but it's, but it's not a, this sort of assumption of like directly, I studied this. So I'm doing this, which is interesting. I will tell you on this job search, I had a, it was between this company and another company. And I had the CEO of the other company say, you know, one of the things I respect about you is that you don't put doctor in front of your name. I clearly have some feelings about it still. It's, it, it landed with me because I was like, that's, the relationship some people have with that title, um, not knowing what it has involved, not knowing the journey to get there, not knowing the thinking to get there. Um, and then some people have assumed like this abundance, you just come with this like authority of knowledge. Those have been sort of by like the extreme experiences I've had with them anecdotally. Great. Thank you for sharing those anecdotes though. I think it really helps us all realize that it's really a case by case basis and maybe an organization by organization. Maria or Erin, did you want to comment before we move on? Yeah, I can hop in. So I've, I've been at the museum for almost 10 years now. So I worked there through my degree and I, I was really lucky. I work in the education department at an educational institution. I mean, the museum is the only one in the world that has its own graduate school. So I was coming from um, an incredibly like intellectually supportive environment surrounded by people who have PhDs and all sorts of things. You know, the person I sit next to, sat next to when I was in the office, he has his PhD in science education from TC. Um, my boss has his PhD in physics. The head of my department has a PhD in submarine volcanology. I mean, it's just, it's all over the place. And so there really was a genuine respect for the hard work um, to the point where like they let me shift my schedule so I could be at the GC for class three days a week and make up the hours at other times. Um, and there was a real like celebration when I was done. And so that's been great. The other side though, is that it's a, you know, it's a very old institution where the credential kind of matters a little more than I wish it did. I don't think respect should come from whether or not you have this piece of paper. So that can be a little weird navigating that, but I'm happy to be navigating it from this side now that it's all done. So I do think it's probably a case by case basis or an organization by organization basis. But I will say I felt incredibly lucky to have the support I did at the museum. Yeah, for, for me um, and my very particular uh case um I, I just I don't get the sense that the PhD credential is really legible in the space that I'm in so I haven't really made it part of my professional identity I mean I certainly like will refer to research I did in that space if it comes up or is relevant and in, in my CV and stuff that I use for job searches I would try to break out every I mean my PhD work is definitely listed there but what I'd really try to emphasize are like the projects that I worked on while doing that research and making them, you know, almost seem like little jobs to sort of show my experience. But I will say I'm seeing like more PhDs trickle in here and there and we recognize each other, right? We're like, ah, like, what are you doing here? Hello. And then there's a lot to talk about, but that's just my experience. 
Maria, your comment about working through graduate school brings me to the question of timing. If you know you're not going to go into academia, should you be looking for a job before you finish the dissertation? Yeah, so I'm risk averse, so I would always say get the job before you're done because it's better to have it and have to finish up the degree than it is to finish up the degree and then be jobless for two years. But that's just from like my own neurotic perspective. I will say that the the last person we hired on our team was in exactly that position. She's ABD and she's been great. We love working with her and having her on the team. I don't know if it's a factor, but she's still working on her degree. So I think there's just a realization that once you jump into, you know, the nine to five, there's just going to be less time to focus on the research. So it's a matter of um, personal preference in that regard. Erin uh, had mentioned um, her CV resume, and I'm wondering what are the soft skills to emphasize? Um, one thing that I think you can emphasize is talking in terms of impact, you know, what sort of impact did your project make? One thing I, I've talked to, sorry to keep talking about Lisa, um, she's a great mentor of mine, uh, we talked about is like, how can you actually translate the work you do in research and, and education to um, other skills that you might need in industry? Like, can you, can you frame teaching as a type of management, right? Can you frame um, different academic projects as, uh, I, I don't know, right? So just maybe even just familiarizing yourself with some of the language in the industry that you're looking at and think about how the academic experiences that you have, you know, that you might be able to reframe them um, in ways that speak to those kinds of business projects. When I'm looking through resumes and cover letters, I'm actually, I don't look for industry buzzwords. I look for language that matches the actual job description. So I know that the person paid attention. I also like really old fashioned. I look at grammar and spelling and punctuation uh, because it shows attention to detail. And that for me is a really, really important soft skill to have. So if there's a typo or your grammar is not great, then it's not going to be a good fit. And I'll just share um, my personal process is I have like a really long running CV doc with lots, which with both buzz, not even buzzwords, but the skills that I have seen across the industry when looking for positions that I was interested in. A lot of design and implementation, um, being able to manage teams, looking at data and making choices from that data. So I was sort of seeing these themes across jobs that I was interested in and folding that into my very long running CV, which then I would take and to Maria's point, craft a little bit closer to the job description. And for me, my cover letter was my like, but when I look at cover letters now, I don't see them as like a writing sample, but a little bit like, I want to know you, like, who are you? What do you believe? How do you communicate? And that's sort of what I put into my cover letter. Like, I want you to know who I am and that I'm coming with a little political charge behind me. <laughs> like, this is what you're getting. And then in my, my CV or my resume, however it's crafted, I sort of hold on to those words that I had seen across or on trend and then craft it a little bit more specifically to what folks are asking for in the job description. And then I also think to your point, Barbara, I don't have just like one resume or one CV. Different organizations ask for either a resume or a CV and they are formatted very differently. And so to share a CV with an organization that's requesting a resume, it can be really jarring for them to get that. Um, so for me, I have very separate files um, and I just pull out whichever one is needed. Maria, that's a great point. 
and Barbara speaking of the running resume, right? Like I have some huge long file where I just keep just like recording everything. But you know, when applying, like, yeah, you craft for that position or at least for that round of, of applications. And usually it's like a one pager or at least in my experience it's been. I'd like to move into maybe a little more of a happy space uh, and just ask what do each of you love most about your jobs and ed tech and why do you stay in this field? I love the people. Um, I have, you know, a wonderful like group of people I have spent now decades working with and for and um, they've made my life richer in and outside of the office and that's been really nice. I think one really interesting thing about ed tech at this moment in history is that it's one of the fields that is like blossoming precisely because of the pandemic instead of collapsing so much of the education system as it was set up crumbled in the past year and the pivot to online learning was so swift and so universal that people who have skills in this area are now in demand in a way that they weren't frankly two years ago even. And so I think it's, it's an opportunity to look at organizations you might not think have an ed tech component because in 2021, they probably do, or they're thinking about growing one because who knows if the next pandemic is just around the corner. So I think there's a lot of opportunity in this space right now. And I think just to build on that, Moving from education to ed tech, I have expanded my own skill set in terms of how things have, like product management, project management, right? There's just a, a very different world that I have access to in terms of um, people's roles. And so I'm, I'm learning a tremendous amount um, and the learning is going both ways. And that feels really nice to be like, how can we all come at this shared goal, um, which because of the pandemic, I feel like ed tech is blossoming, but it's also being interrogated more. And I think a really important way, like folks are looking to ed tech and ed tech products and seeing like, do you do the things that you say you do? And what are your foundations? And are you really supporting learning and how, right? And that to me is a really great space because of the impact that all that has on kids. And so to, to be in a space that is being interrogated importantly, to be part of um, a team that's holding up the integrity of the product and how we believe it and then just to all be working towards the shared goal and learning from each other is very much a driver for me on the day-to-day. I think what's been exciting for me about my current position is I get to be motivated by the same things like you know in my my academic research I was really concerned about where where technology is going and who gets to help participate in shaping our, our technological future so I was doing that from like a classroom perspective and a research perspective and a very critical perspective. Now I'm like on the other side of the aisle and I get to think about like, well, how do we welcome more people into that? How do we make um, developer communities more inclusive, um, more diverse to make sure that more more people are are helping shape our future? But the other big uh, win for me in this shift is that, you know, like Barbara was saying, I, I really struggled with mental health and trying to keep up with the academic lifestyle and being on the market and always trying to publish and apply for grants. And it was just like work never ended. And for me, my personal life really suffered. So I 
really like having the boundaries of a industry job where it's like nine to five. And I mean, it's not always that way, but I feel that anxiety of always trying to produce for the academic clock has gone and that has actually been healthy. That's nice to hear. Perhaps in wrapping up, just any final thoughts you'd like to share that didn't come up during our hour together or any advice that you've heard that you want to re-emphasize in closing? I don't know if it's relevant to anyone here, but I'll say something that I wish maybe, well, maybe people did tell me a few years ago is like, if it feels hard or dark, right? Because when I'm searching for jobs or trying to figure out what to do after the PhD, if it feels dark, like, no, you're awesome. And you are going to bring so much value to whatever organization or company or project that you get to and just believe in yourself. And I'm sorry if this is cheesy, but I think I, there are points I really needed to hear this and just be open to opportunities, even if they don't look like the ones you were hoping for. Like sometimes there's, there's a lot more out there than you imagined previously. Yeah. Be kind to yourself. <laughs> yeah. That. And I think um, maybe it was Maria or maybe it was everyone who said it before. There's a big picture thinking that we are constantly traversing as like in our doctoral work that is that is really valued in other spaces. And I think that's one of the, the sort of unnamed skills that I've been able to carry through other jobs that have been an asset to just sort of like, let's think critically. Let's what's the big picture? Like, what is the bigger thing that we're all the bigger context that this is all existing in. And that is, I'm, I, I guarantee you a space that everybody's in, you have to be, right? Like what's your theoretical framework, right? <laughs> so own that and, and, and let that come forth unabashedly. That does sound cheesy, you're right. But no, no, I mean it very sincerely. A huge thank you to Maria, Barbara, and Aaron for participating in our panel event and for sharing their experiences with our students, alums, and postdocs. Please stay tuned for future episodes of Alumni Allowed. Also, be sure to visit our office's website at cuny.is slash careerplan and follow us on Twitter at careerplangc. At the Office of Career Planning and Professional Development, we believe it's never too soon to begin planning for your postgraduate career. Thanks for listening.